Okay. Sound? Do you need sound? Yeah, yeah, I was just gonna hear how your sound is going. How is my sound? see another friend of the pod, Jason Carrion, and uh, maybe that's what I should listen to for three hours yeah, as so I drive down the 10. If you speed it up to quadruple speed and you had three hours, it'll only take you probably triple that to get done. <laughs> Goodness. A lot of content. Yeah. A lot of content. 400, you know, how many pages? Was yeah, it's close to 400 pages, I believe. And actually, oddly enough, Dan, you've given us a good transition into our topic because while the Mueller report has been out and people have been either just completely ignoring it or reading every single page, and as another couple Democratic presidential hopefuls have joined the field to make it a nice round 23 Democrats running. Yeah, I think 23 is the final count. It depends on, like, some people who have announced have not been considered serious enough by the media and so they haven't been counted gotcha. so it, it, like me. yeah yeah like you dan like i know you said you were running for president but they're not going to count you there your face is I'm not, not going to show up on cnn so I, I i don't have a good enough career yet i don't have enough money constitutionally i'm not yeah i was gonna say you're not 35 <laughs> <laughs> but you know i think the other two are bigger yeah 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 well What's a constitution? We're, we're in a perpetual constitutional crisis, uh, as some people would say. So with all that going on, like, kind of a blip on a lot of people's radar has been this recent measles outbreak that has gone from coast to coast and everywhere in between in this country. Um, and since 
last week was my birthday. I figured the best birthday present I could ask for is getting Dan Lord in to talk about anti-vaxxers one more time. Oh, so goodness. We, we uh, covered this early on in the pod, um, but it was a more general uh, discussion that Dan and I had, mostly about um, what who anti-vaxxers were, how their claims really aren't founded in any scientific evidence, and Dan really went into like a big public health explanation of why vaccines are important. So if this conversation is interesting to you, I'd say go back um, for a deeper dive that we did early on in some of the single-digit pods. I forget which pod it was, but it was like one of the first couple. So, yeah, it was. So give that a listen if you like what we're about to talk about. But yeah, Dan, I don't know, like what has made its way into your radar with this whole measles outbreak? Yeah, so I think the most most interesting part here is that the MMR vaccine was, that's measles, mumps, and rubella. That's the one, that's the vaccine that if you don't get, you know, causes a measles outbreak. This was actually the original um, vaccine that had the phony study on it done with the 12 kids to show the link to autism. Mm -hmm. So I thought that was a weird uh, thing to come back that this has been, this is the the vaccine that actually kicked off the anti-vaccine movement. Um, Um, For those who haven't heard about this, 12 children's study do you want to like give a quick yeah, yeah real quick because um, this is this is what kicked off the anti-vaxxer movement in many ways yes in the 90s there was a scientist doctor who um did a uh study on 12 children to find a link between autism and the mmr mach- or vaccine in hundreds and hundreds of studies since then they have found that that's not correct at all uh this guy lost his medical license the story was redacted um, but he actually still uh, does talks on why he thinks that um, vaccines do have a link to autism. And if you're interested on that more, look up the John Oliver on vaccines from about a year ago because they do a pretty good uh, discussion on not only how the anti-vaccine movement is moving now, but how it got started. Um, yeah. The TLDR is this guy made up the study. Um, he cooked some of his numbers. It was so bad that it can't be repeatable, and he lost his license. But somehow the story maintained itself in um, uh, popular, not media, uh, pop culture, um, mm-hmm. and has persisted and grown in recent years to the anti-vaxxer movement that we see today. Yeah, I mean... Well, because now there's a bunch of high-profile celebrities that have taken on this. Like, what's her name? Jenny McCarthy or whatever is like, yeah. McCarthy, yeah. Um, the, the issue that I see almost even more important than just straight up rejecting vaccines because you think it's bad uh, are movements by some people, most notably, um, you know, President Trump when he was when he was running in 2016, who say that, you know, vaccines are good but you know what Mm -hmm. I mean like but I want to slow them down but I want to spread them out but I want to have less of them kind of thing the entire issue there is just uh, you know as soon as you reject the medical community's uh, analysis of one point and substitute your own you run into issues Uh, but you're right the the full anti-vaxxer the absolutely do not vaccinate your children at all movement is most uh, yeah most connected to Jenny McCarthy yeah yeah exactly and I think while we're here because we haven't jumped into this actual most recent measles outbreak, it's 
I just want to share this quick history that I came across. I'm reading Walter Isaacson's uh, biography of Ben Franklin, and he comes across the first documented anti-vaxxer movement in America, which is actually Ben Franklin's brother, James. Um, so back when Ben Franklin was an apprentice to his brother in colonial Boston in the, I think it was still the 1600s, so Boston's a very small town, under 20,000 inhabitants, still very much like a Pur Puritan church-run colony, more or less, and so the Puritan church has a large amount of sway, and his brother James just decided to pick an arbitrary fight with like the powers that be of the Puritan church, and he decided to go against um, the Puritan church's directive to have your children vaccinated. And so that was like the first instance of someone contesting the powers that be saying that you should vaccinate your children. Um, ben Franklin was an apprentice, so he obviously wasn't leading it. I think he might have written an anonymous essay or two, but he wasn't really a part of it. But after the fact, he became an ardent vaxxer, like pro-vaccination person, maybe shaped by the fact that he lost his first son at an early age um, due to smallpox. And he believes it's because a child wasn't vaccinated early enough for smallpox. And there's letters afterwards of him writing to family members reminding them to get their children inoculated to smallpox. Huh. Yeah, so uh, the, the, one of the first anti-vaxxers became a very pro-vaccine, pro-inoculation person later on in his life. Very and that was Ben Franklin. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And that was right around, the, you know, that was smallpox, Edward Jenner, right? Yeah. Late 18, or late 1700s. That would have been right around that time. I was trying to do the mental math. I was like, was Ben Franklin around when inoculations were around? But yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah it, it was a new thing. And mm -hmm. I, yeah, I, I the historical timeline is escaping me now. I just remember that one story. But yeah, it was, yeah. It was a practice when Ben Franklin oh, was yeah, a child. Oh, yeah, absolutely. No, I agree. That's just, uh, that's a... Uh, Ben Franklin's brother. Interesting. Yeah. Anti-vaxxer. Who would have thought? Ben Franklin, Jenny McCarthy. Who <laughs> <laughs> wouldn't know they had so much in common? Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, now I think we should go into this actual case study. So uh, going back to like what's entered your radar, um, we, we kind of went off on a little tangent there. What, what else has uh, come across your radar with this whole outbreak? Yeah, so two years or two years ago in the U.S. was the Somali outbreak in Minnesota, right? Mm -hmm. When the when the Somali community had um, vaccines down to something like forty percent of the population, mm -hmm. and uh, this little community in Minnesota, you know, measles came back. Uh, this year in twenty nineteen, um, it was in Portland, what, or Portland? Yeah. Uh, perhaps Portland, but also Clark yeah. County, Washington, is yes. the yes. epicenter. Yes, um, but as well as uh, Ukraine, Philippines, Madagascar, DRC, Venezuela, and Brazil, which have had tens of thousands of cases mm -hmm. um, just this year. Um, I've read two really good studies that I wanted to talk about. One okay. about how um, uh, measles moves into and out of a population uh, that was actually just published by some Penn State professors. Mm. And two, and I think more interesting for discussion later, uh, a BBC article about some Italian uh, professors at Bocconi University and the Bruno Kessler Foundation that have called for 
compulsory vaccinations for public school based on the fact that their modeling sees the UK doubling the amount of measles cases uh, in the mm. next few years. Wow. Um, which, yeah, in Italy, that is that is already fact. You have to be vaccinated uh, to go to public school. Um, and the measles uh, MMR vaccine is only effective as the WHO has um, noticed at 95% of the population. Mm. 95% of the population has to have the vaccine for it to be effective. Uh, if you're interested in the math behind that, uh, we did talk about that in the earlier podcast about how you would get to that, that number and recognizing that a certain amount of people cannot be vaccinated due to other autoimmune disorders, cancers, um, mm. th- that nature. Uh, but in that study uh, by the Italian researchers, that 95%, which is what it needs to be to be effective, uh, in England right now, it's down to 87%. Uh, even though the disease was quote-unquote eradicated um, a few years ago, it's now dipped back down to 87%. Uh, and they also fear um, that the vaccine might come back. Yeah, I mean, it's important to realize just how contagious measles is. Like the, the I think the current understanding is that 90% of people that are just in the room with someone yes. who currently has measles, 90% yes. of those who are not vaccinated will themselves contract measles and then a lot of disease to spread. So with that type of with that level of contagiousness, if that's the right word, yeah. like, uh, it's very easy for a disease to spread amongst a small population of unvaccinated people, but it allows the disease to thrive, which is what we talked about with herd immunity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that, that's interesting that the UK is having this problem as well. I didn't, I didn't know that was an issue. Yeah. It's, it's, it's been not only the UK, but across, um, South America and in some parts of, uh, uh, yeah, some, some parts of Africa, the issue always is how much can you, um, what percent of the population is immune either through vaccination or through, um, like your own immunities. Um, and with the move towards less vaccinations over the last couple of years, they started coming back. Mm-hmm. Um, the interesting thing that this study shows from the Penn State group is that not is not excuse me is that the disease does not grow in the way that you would expect the disease to grow. Where some uh, you know maybe there's a hundred cases this year that means two hundred cases next year that means five hundred cases. It's not uh, the growth pattern that's the worrying factor for measles outbreaks. It's the variability in cases over time. What that means is that when the disease was first eradicated, as they started, you know, vaccinating large parts of the population, they would see that the cases themselves would go down, which is positive, but the variability year to year would go up. So, you know, maybe one year, you know, there's a thousand cases, the next year there's 700 cases, but the year after that there's 2,000 cases. Uh, The trend would be down, but the variability would go up. Mm -hmm. And when the variability is down and the cases are down, that's when you're about to eliminate the disease, right? Mm-hmm. When you've gone. Uh, I see. So it's not a, it's not a straight, and that's the issue right now is that, you know, maybe there's a few hundred cases this year in the U.S. Next year there might be zero. That doesn't mean that we're on the right path. What we need to be is, you know, 
and, and that's where I think public health could come into a state where we go, oh, you know, we're good because the measles outbreak is down this year. Mm-hmm. The variability and, signals the, the comeback of the disease. Okay, and does that have anything to do with, like, the disease itself adapting to our treatment? Like, I, adapting to antibiotics? Is it, like, the disease itself is changing, or is it just, like, statistical no. variation? Yeah, it wouldn't be, um, it wouldn't be antibiotics or anything like that. It's not that it's, it's not that the, we're in a, a, a race to up the measles vaccine with measles evolution. The issue, I'm not actually sure what the, uh, I was, I was trying to figure out what the, what the reason for it. That was just the statistical analysis that they did over the breakdown of the measles. Mm-hmm. Um, since we've put effort into breaking it down, they mm-hmm. found that variability, um, is a huge factor in whether or not the disease is on its way out. Um, so I, I don't know the, the biological reason behind that. Um, but the, the tipping point towards, uh, it growing the way we expect it to right? The, you know, in a hundred cases, 300 cases, 800 cases, that only happens after we've gone through this variability point of like zero, 200, 10, 500 kind of thing. I see. Okay. And, and I mean, that's important just because, so at the current level, in this current outbreak, there's been 704 reported cases. Um, and it's important, so I believe it's either the, the World Health Organization or the CDC claims that with modern medical practices, still one in every 1,000 cases of measles results in the death of the patient. So when you're, you're allowing numbers to fluctuate around the couple of hundreds to thousands, that's when it's highly likely that someone's going to die. I mean, like, just, it's almost guaranteed that there's going to be some fatalities to meet measles at that point when you let it get to that level of the population. And, and the other problem would come from complications from having measles and something else. Yeah. So in the DRC this year, according to this, this Penn State study, there's already been over a thousand deaths um, that they can treat measles outbreak with the same number as the Ebola virus there. Mm. You know, this isn't like some spots. This is a very deadly uh, disease, especially in children. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, it's not something to mess around with. And I think you, you, you were talking about eradication. It's also important to remember that in the year 2000, we were we declared the disease eradicated. Right. And for... If you just look at like the plot of number of cases per year, you can see, you're right, it's not demonstrating the level of variability that you would see in a disease that is still prevalent in the population. There's no sudden outbreaks. It's a very steady level of the number of cases per year. So it was a very solid, uh, well-founded claim to say that the U.S. had eradicated measles before this outbreak in Somalia. Um, a couple years, uh, I'm sorry, in uh, Minnesota in the Somalian community a couple years ago. So for, I mean, so for those who are interested in what we're talking about, uh, I would strongly recommend the daily that came out. So the daily, the podcast by the New York times, uh, the one that came out on April 26th that, uh, covered mostly the Orthodox Jewish community in Brooklyn where, about half of these outbreaks have occurred in America. 
So yeah, the New York Times reporter goes through like a variety of factors that makes the Orthodox Jewish community in Brooklyn like the prime target for this measles, measles outbreak. Um, one of them just being the communal nature of the Orthodox Jewish community. You, know, they, you need 10 people to be together to pray um, in Orthodox Judaism, you know, the whole... Uh, the whole Sabbath for the Jewish people is a very communal experience with Shabbat dinner and like going to the temple together. And um, so whenever you have bodies together, if some of those bodies are carrying measles, um, it's prone to spread more easily when you have people together um, one-on-one or just in communities. Uh, The other one is the fact that there's normally more children. Uh, I think... Jew- Orthodox Jewish families have two to three times as many children as the average American family, and children are um, much more uh, susceptible to measles, and so you just have a younger population and is just more susceptible to an outbreak. And then finally is the fact that um, they don't really trust information coming from outside the community as much as others. And this is a connection with the Somali immigrant community in Minnesota, where it was a tight-knit immigrant community, and they they weren't exactly as either trusting or able to understand outside information. And so when this anti-vaxxer propaganda made its way into the community through community members, it was able to spread more rapidly. The idea was stickier um, than in like another culture whereas like if someone were to tell dan a bunch of the anti-vaxxer talking points he would be more inclined to go on the internet and realize that it's just patently false whereas someone in an orthodox community or the somalian immigrant community um less likely to check out and even trust counterfactuals to the anti-vaxxer propaganda and so as a result you have suppressed herd immunity because less people are vaccinated and then you reach a critical point where an outbreak is going to happen so that that's that's what happened and i'm just curious with dan what you think about all that i mean it, it would always be difficult to um you know the main the main issue i think that a lot of face when they're trying to figure out if this is true is access to information trust and belief and understanding right so you, you've mentioned some things like language barriers that could prevent people from from trusting doctors um, or communities you mentioned that you know it's based on the community and the type of community if you don't relate to the people who are feeding you the information you might be less likely to trust or understand it um, but I think that the way that a lot of people have tried to solve that issue mm-hmm. or um, has been to test more ways that vaccines could cause autism <laughs> or do more, more scientific studies on like the long-term effects of vaccines. And while I am 100% for uh, you know, increased study in anything in the science community, mm-hmm. we've reached the point of diminishing returns where publishing more studies on it um, is 
adding to the information base. And while, you know, it's kind of like my, my thoughts on climate change, right? Like we do all these massive studies on climate change. If the 501st study didn't change your mind, that climate change is real. I don't know if the 502nd will. Yeah, I will say that the difference, though, is a lot of these climate studies now, especially by the IPCC, are mostly measuring the effects of climate change and yes. projecting what could happen. One of them yeah. being that you're changing the temperate zones of the Earth, and thus diseases are much more easy. It, it, there's, there's more... So, I mean... What, here where winters are well not here in california but in like where you are where winters are colder it's much more difficult for a disease to live year-round and so if you have good enough herd immunity you can eventually suppress the the disease to the point where it won't spread it'll just die out over one cold winter and then not return but if the temperate zones are uh, expanding around the globe in a way that there is now more places on the earth where diseases can live and survive year-round, then it's much more easy for a disease to remain embedded in a community. And, you know, in time of international travel, then you can go and continue to spread the disease. So, I mean, that that's just another way that climate change is uh, adversely affecting humanity. Yeah. No, and, and you're correct that, that there's a difference between studying to show causation and studying to show... Um, uh, effect, mm-hmm. you know, like, like what the effect is and it could be. I think the other problem is, and we talked about this on the last one, I believe, and we've talked about this with a, a lot of things, including climate change, including, um, uh, you know, and most of our podcasts when we talked about science and, and policy, which is we've backed ourselves into the corner by being unable to prove anything as you know, the science community is unable to quote unquote prove that there's no, you know, link between vaccines and autism. And that will always be a crux used against, uh, the scientific community by the anti-vaxxer movement, because you can say, you know, you can't prove to me. They don't, well, you're right. I can give you to the best of our knowledge and the most of our certainty at this point with the information we have, but that's not as strong as vaccines cause autism. No, that, that's true. Um, yeah, that, that, that's always a tough part. I mean, there, there's also just the fact, I mean, I was talking to Demi about this, and it's like the, the, in a lot of cases of autism, the symptoms emerge later on in a child's development. So initially when you have a baby, it might not be as evident that the baby is autistic, but as a child grows and develops, it becomes more evident that they are in fact autistic. And in between that time where you have supposedly a normal baby and an autistic child, you have vaccinations. And so there's this, there's this gray area where people can assume that vaccines cause autism when in fact it was just an undiagnosed case before vaccinations were given. Um, so there's also that shady area as well. No, no, but it's true. But the one thing that science has done a good job of demonstrating and we're seeing now is what happens when vaccines are not administered to a community and the herd immunity drops below a certain percentage. And it's become quite obvious. I mean, 500 of the 700 cases that have been reported have been unvaccinated people um, in the United States. 
and those 200 are going to be those, you know, a good portion of those 200 are going to be those people that we cannot, like, that cannot be vaccinated. Mm -hmm. You know, we talked about, you know, if you're born with autoimmune disorders or if you have certain uh, cancers or diseases when you're younger, those are the population that are unable to be vaccinated and are therefore most covered by herd immunity and the population at large getting vaccinated. Yeah, I mean, as, as we... um maybe transition into talking about how we can encourage vaccination. It's important, again, to remember that number that you brought out, which is 95%. 95% of the population needs to be vaccinated in order for us to reach this critical herd immunity where it's possible to eradicate measles. And that's, that's a large percentage of the population, <laughs> the point where a lot of the five percent that is unvaccinated is probably the ones that are have autoimmune disorders or were um too ill as a child to receive this vaccination and as a result uh, couldn't get the mmr vaccination and so there's really very little room for people to um not get vaccinated on religious or moral grounds and us still to have the herd immunity necessary to get rid of measles and, you know, no vaccine is ever going to be 100% effective. Yeah. So the best we can do is get the most amount of people we can vaccinated, continue to get more vaccines in development, um, and educate the population. Yeah, so I guess that's that's the next question, the, the final question we want to answer before we close out, which is, like, how how can we live in a society, especially in America, where we tell this story of, freedom, freedom of speech, freedom of the individual to do what he or she wants. Um, the parent voices regarding the safety of their child. Yeah. How, how do we reconcile that with the public health need of everyone who is able to getting their child vaccinated? Like, what are, what are the solutions? Well, that's what this article from the BBC suggested, right? Is okay. that you attach some sort of you don't make it an option you know what I mean um, compulsory immunization is something that like we as Americans wouldn't really, would definitely be opposed to mm-hmm. um, I mean if we're opposed to like universal health care or any other sort of quote unquote socialist uh, thing that we take from Europe um, you know we're definitely not going to be up for <laughs> mandatory um Immunizations, but I think that there, there could come a time where there could be a point, and I believe we've passed it, where we recognize that, uh, you know, public health is important, and some measures of freedom have to be um, uh, traded for public safety and health. So you think we've passed that? Do you mean that it I, has... I, I, would say, I would say I personally have passed that. Um, I wouldn't say, I don't know if we as, as a society have, I mean, we're not, otherwise they would be, be mandatory right now. Um, but I, I, I don't, I, I think we, I mean, I, I would be in favor of mandatory vaccines for public schools. Um, we already do a lot of vaccine checking when you get to school, but obviously you can, uh, you know, back out for religious obligations and stuff like that. But um, I, I don't know. I worry that 
sorry for that little break. I just wanted to check that uh, the thing that I just said about uh, you can abstain from uh, your vaccines in public schools for religious beliefs. You can in 47 states uh, of 50. So I assume three um, that all 50 states require that you have to be vaccinated to attend school. Mm -hmm. But in those three, there are no uh, exemptions. And I'd be interested in looking up what those three are and seeing what their rates of mass outbreaks are. I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? On, on, you know, we have compulsory vaccines here, but obviously, but you can abstain if you write in. What do you Mm -hmm. think about making them compulsory compulsory? Well, I mean, I think that's one of the things about, like, public places. So, like, New New York's response to this measles outbreak was a $1,000 fine for having an unvaccinated child in a public space. And so it's like, you can have an unvaccinated child in a private space. But, like, it's, it's kind of like going to this idea of a social contract where uh-huh. we have these public goods that everyone can take part in. You just need to do Agreed a couple so. of things. Yeah. And in this case, a couple, one of the things is do the prerequisite health, uh, preventative health to measures ensure. to ensure the overall public health. Like, if you yeah. don't want to be a benefit to, if you want to, if if you're going to do something which is detrimental to public health, then you cannot enjoy public privileges. Is like the the idea there, and some people might think that is too extreme, but I, I don't know. I, I think it's part of this whole like social contract idea, where it's like you can live in America and receive the pr- protections that you get for being an American, but you just have to also accept the laws that we have in the United States of America as a result so on and so forth, um, it's in that same vein. Um, and so I think public schools should be able to do something similar because they're public spaces. And so, especially as a space for the youngest and most vulnerable to measles, I think they have the right to look out for the health of all inhabitants and not just the rights of a couple. Yeah, and I, I don't know if this is too much towards, like, socialized healthcare, but I'll, t- I'll take it a step further. And I would say that, um, you know, we need to make vaccines uh, as available and public and accessible uh, with as reduced price as we can mm-hmm. to afford to make that decision. You know, one issue has been outside of just like objection from it. You know, there are a lot of low income communities that don't have access to it as well. Um, and I think it's a an undertaking by the, I don't know if you could do it from a state level, you'd have to probably, or from a federal level, you'd have to do it from a state level. Mm-hmm. Um, but to provide, you know, vaccines and then also things like the flu vaccine, you know, putting them in as many places as possible so that we can make sure that we provide as healthy of a public space as we possibly can. Yeah, I mean, I mean, that, that kind of gets into the same argument that people have with, like, universal health care. Yeah, preventative care is expensive, but not nearly as expensive as emergency care. Exactly. And a- acute illness treatment. So maybe the public bearing the cost of getting all children vaccinated is a bit expensive, but it's not as expensive as the public cost of treating the measles. And also just the the generic cost that I'm sure some economists can calculate of what it costs to have a less healthy public. Exactly. 
Yeah, yeah, we're, we're in agreement on the, without this becoming too much of an echo chamber, yeah. Yeah. We, we share similar thoughts on that. Yeah, you kind of wonder why this appears to be radical. Other than, like, well, if you're someone who has a very strict definition of freedom, the government telling you you need to put something in your child's body, I could understand how that becomes extreme. But that that's when you phrase it that way. I mean, like, Dan, we, we've talked about debate framing before, and it's like when you frame something that way, like, the government is telling me to do something to my child, of course yeah. you're going to be sympathetic to the parents. But if it's yeah. like, it's it's been... De- it's been demonstrably low risk, high reward yeah. since we've been doing vaccines. With the government undercut or undercutting, uh, sorry, ensuring that if you if something goes wrong with the vaccines, they'll pay for it. Yeah. Um, which is that, yeah, real quick, um, on, like, that was a, a decision that the government made in, uh, what was it, 60s, 70s, 80s? I can't remember. Um, but basically, there's a program where if something goes wrong with the vaccine, you can sue the government, um, or you can basically put this, go to this agency and say that like the, this happened. It's called the Vaccine Injury Compensation Program that was made in 1988. Um, that says like, look, there's always going to be some risks, and like we are, uh, the government is saying we need to take these risks in order to assure a healthier population. If somebody is somehow negatively affected in the greater scheme of things, then the government will make sure that reparations are made in return for everybody else being safe. That's this VICP. Yeah. Um, well, it's, it, it's paid out a lot recently, um, but the uh, a lower review um, from, from a few years ago put this, uh, put the purpose of this law as um, to compensate children who have been injured while serving the public good. And recognizing that, like, just like you're saying, like, you know, the incre- or the initial cost, you know, to take care of, of the population might be a little bit higher than um, than we want to. Maybe we all have to bear the cost of vaccinating every child, but the cost to society for having measles outbreaks is, is far greater. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it's quite apparent that we're in agreement on this. Uh, I, I hope that we have convinced listeners to. Give it a go if you <laughs> if you uh, were considering you yourself not getting vaccinated or your child not getting vaccinated. Yeah, and I, I've heard stories of now young adults who found out that they were not vaccinated as a child. They have no medical records, at least, of themselves being vaccinated and gone to get themselves vaccinated. So it's not like a one-off event where if your parents decided not to do it, you can't do it now. So... Yeah as we like get into what people can do, one of them is just check out your own vaccination record and see if there's any missing vaccines that you are still able to receive and for the benefit of public health, get yourself vaccinated. And also for yourself. I mean, like, like we said, the measles is highly contagious. 90% of people exposed to it, like 90% of people who are in the room with someone who has measles will catch measles if they themselves are not vaccinated. And that rate is substantially lower for those who are vaccinated. So for your own benefit, you should get yourself vaccinated. Um, as we're like getting close to municipal primaries and elections, there's always like 
looking at your local candidates and seeing what their stance is on vaccines I mean, because your school board officials are highly powerful in this instance. Yes. Like we said, public schools requiring mm-hmm. mandatory vaccinations is highly important um, and mm-hmm. would cause communities to have higher rates of vaccinations. So that is also something to take into account. And obviously, like Dan said, states have um, requirements in public schools, but they have certain exemptions. So check the platforms of state house candidates to see if they, where they are on exemptions. Like some are religious exemptions, but some states, including Washington, which had another outbreak in Clark County, they, they have a moral exemption. So if you feel like you are morally in, in, uh, against vaccines, then you are allowed to not vaccinate your child. And that's just with the risk of using too much strong language, that's just utter bullshit. <laughs> um, yeah, so see, especially if you live in Washington, to our Washington state listeners, you know, uh, see if there's people in your state house that want to get rid of that moral exemption. Yeah, and yeah. that's about all I can think of, Dan. Do you have anything else? Um, I would just add, if you're going to do your research because you don't trust us, which is fine, um, recognize that you know doing your research includes understanding your sources, right? Like if you know the entirety of the medical community thinks one thing, and War Eagle America dot awesome think something else you know that doesn't make it a two-sided argument you know recognize that like when you're when you're doing research part of your research is understanding your sources mm-hmm. it's not just understanding the content um because you know you can provide content that that says anything um but recognize what communities are there and what communities have to gain right so there's mm-hmm. no deep state medical community needing that this validation because then they make a lot of money off you uh, that's not how medical research works. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, it's a medical community that says something that you should probably listen to. Yeah, and just, I guess, like a final follow-up on the science that Dan was talking about. Like, obviously, the scientific community reaching consensus is not the end goal, mm-hmm. but there, there are some questions that come about. So if you call that initial result with the 12 kids in England, like a non-conventional result, that's fine in the scientific community, but if you conduct similar experiments and not and do not get the same results, then you start to question the initial results. It, re- reproducibility is highly important in science, and so the fact that this initial study that incorrectly linked vaccines to autism cannot be reproduced by subsequent scientific studies it calls into question the conclusion and reduces how scientifically sound the findings are. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, I, I have nothing else to add. Dan, you know how we end the podcast? Uh, I'll remember this time. Huh? Uh, follow us on at 304 uh, on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks again, as we said, to, uh, to all the people that have listened to us over the past years. That's, that's pretty... I was pretty astounded by that number. Yeah. Feeling very grateful for it. So, um, from State College, PA. And from Santa Barbara, California. 
This, uh, this is Seamus O'Hara and Dan Lorden, always reminding you to stay hungry and stay foolish. <laughs>